You're listening to the Common Descent Podcast. Hello, Will. Hello, David. Hello, listeners, and welcome to episode 62 of the Common Descent Podcast. Woohoo! In today's episode, we are discussing amber. Yeah. Not we are. the color, not the friend of yours from work. Nope. The material, the organically derived material. It's not a mineral, more on that later. <laughs> material that we find all up and down the fossil record that is famous for its place in Earth history, not just for being a nifty trace fossil in itself, but also because of its habit of including within it remains of other organisms. Yeah, it's one of the the holy grails for finding really well-preserved small animals. It is the source of some of the most incredible and rarest fossils in history. We learn just amazing stuff from amber. So we're going to talk all about it. We're going to talk in this episode about what amber is, where it comes from, and what it means as a source of fossil material. And then at the end, I'm pretty sure what's going to happen is I'm just going to start listing cool examples of amber. Because there's a punch. Because <laughs> they're, oh my goodness. <laughs> this episode was requested by Nils, one of our patrons. Thank you very much, Nils. Thanks, Nils. But before we get started, some announcements. Speaking of patrons... We've received a few new patrons since the last episode, including one who has subscribed at the level where we give you a shout out on the podcast. Woo! So welcome to Ansley. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Also speaking of Patreon, if you've been keeping an eye on it, you will see that with the inclusion of our newest patrons, we have for the first time surpassed $300 a month. Yeah, we have. Which is pretty awesome. It's amazing. Now, uh, as of this very recording, the month has not ticked over yet. So it's possible that number will, you know, the number kind of wavers at the the turn of the month. Yeah. But we're up in the 300 range. And if you look at our Patreon, we set a goal for that. Mm -hmm. We said that when we started getting 300, we would arrange for public appearances. And as it turns out, we've already been doing that. A little bit. A bit. So this year, we're arranging for two. Yes. At the end of June, Will and I will both be appearing at NAPC, the North American Paleontological Conference, Mm -hmm. in Southern California. We will, in fact, be giving a presentation about the podcast. So if you are a fellow paleontologist who's going to be at NAPC, hopefully we'll see you there. If you're not a fellow paleontologist, I assume you won't be there because NAPC is stupid expensive, just like SVP is. a bit pricey. But huge thanks to our patrons for helping to send us there, which they are. Yes. No, we would not be able to get there, both of us, without it. And our second appearance at the beginning of September, we will be making our triumphant return to Dragon Con. Woo! So if you are going to be in Atlanta for Dragon Con, maybe you'll see us there. Yeah. We're both going to be guest professionals this year, so we're going to show up on a bunch of panels. Uh, As of right now, we don't know what we're doing, Mm -mm. but as the schedule comes together, we'll let you know. We have a couple of cool ideas that hopefully we'll be able to make happen. Yeah, we've got some some hopeful prospects that they, and we'll see if they're interested in. 
In the meantime, all throughout the month of June, we are be putting out our second Silver Screen Science series. This time in honor of the new Godzilla movie. Yeah! Which we have dubbed Kai June. <laughs> and all throughout the month, we're going to be talking more about Godzilla, Godzilla's American counterpart, King Kong, and the idea of kaiju in general. Yes. Another couple things real quick. Hey, we have a store mm-hmm. on Zazzle. If you haven't already, check out the store. All sorts of cool merch. And speaking of cool stuff, I wanted to make a mention that we have... So on iTunes, sometimes people leave us reviews on iTunes, which is super helpful. Thank you so much. Everybody, please do that. It's always appreciated. And one of the reviews that I saw was somebody saying that they like to listen to us for inspiration for their art. Oh, cool. And that our Spooky series that was a great source of inspiration for them. And I wanted to make the, the shout out and say, if you do art inspired by our podcast and you're willing, share it with us. 100%. We love seeing art that is inspired by our podcast. Uh, sometimes we've shared art on the social medias. Other times it goes up on our walls. <laughs> Let us know if you're doing cool artwork. We would love to see it because that's awesome. I think that's all the announcements, Will. Sounds good to me. In that case, before we get into our discussion about Amber, we will discuss some news. This is our tradition. Every episode, we like to pick a few bits of newses from paleontology or evolution, biology, etc. and discuss them. So, Will, what's the news with the news? I have some newses about dinosaurs walking around. Oh, cool. I hear they did that a lot. And from time to time. So this first bit of news is about a dinosaur, Moosaurus. It means mouse lizard, so Moosaurus. And research shows that it may have transitioned from crawling on all fours to standing on two feet, kind of like we do. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. So this is research by Alejandro Otero et al. in Scientific Reports. And the article we'll be linking to is uh, in National Geographic by Jason Bittle. So, Musaurus patagonicus is an early Jurassic sauropodomorph. So that's the overall group that includes all sauropods and their close relatives. So the big, long-necked, lumbering guys, but also a whole bunch of semi-long-necked, less lumbering dinosaurs. <laughs> this was one of those that was smaller, more moderately sized, and as an adult, well-known walked around on all on on the back hind legs right bipedal like the earliest one like platyosaurus absolutely that's the ancestral way of walking for uh, dinosaurs in general as far as the most research shows well when it hatched it was very very small and it was a very different body design because that's very common with babies you know we have giant heads when we're first born uh, they said that a baby musaurus would be able to fit within your hand curl up in the yeah. palm of your hand that's how they got their name yes mouse mouse lizard mouse dinosaur because the original discovery was of the baby ones. indeed because they're so tiny and they said estimates in just about eight years they would have gone to more than a ton so very quick growing Ooh. so from a mouse to a cow yep <laughs> well they have a well-preserved series of fossils from these dinosaurs that show at least three key stages of life so they have a growth series for this dinosaur. 
and they decided to examine it to try to learn more about how was it moving around? How was it, you know, behaving differently throughout that transition? They created 3D interactive models to work out where the center of mass in the body was at the different stages and to even mess around with how it might have moved. In early life, animal had a much larger head like us, and that would have put the center of mass, the center of weight further up front, which according to the models would have forced it to walk on all fours. And they said it had well-developed forearms. So it was, those arms seemed like they were ready to take that weight. But then as the dinosaur grew, its tail grew more notably, and the weight shifted back with that tail until the center of weight, the center of the body mass had moved enough back for them to raise up off those front limbs. Oh, cool. This is actually a similar transition that we see in some other dinosaur groups, or at least is hypothesized for other dinosaur groups like Iguanodons and Myasauras and uh, a few of the other semi-quadrupedal or sometimes bipedal herbivores seem to also follow this trend. So this seems to be a fairly common trend among dinosaurs. There are also some who go the opposite way, who are running around two-legged when they're younger and seem to more transition to four uh, you know, quadrupedal walking when they're older. The reason this is really interesting is they were looking for other examples, other animals to compare to this sort of transition. And we're really the only good example they could find <laughs> for modern animals. I was just trying to, th I was just thinking, I was trying to think what other animals do this where they transition from four to two. And there's, there's really not many. No. So like, this is some this is an an odd trend that was very common among dinosaurs and is not common nowadays, which is interesting about dinosaur development. It also is interesting because it traces the evolutionary history of certain groups. Indeed. Where you had certain groups where, like you said with dinosaurs, ancestrally bipedal and later on evolved quadrupedal forms, mm -hmm. and probably the other way around as well. Very cool. Ont yeah. Ontogenetic shifts. Hey, ontogeny, episode 33. <laughs> ontogenetic shifts, shifts through age are fascinating, and it's always exciting when we have enough fossils of a species to show us that. Oh, I love it. I love it. It's wonderful to be able to have a literal family history, not just yes. family as in the classification, but a genealogy of dinosaurs. Well, you talked about a mouse lizard. But my first news piece is about a mouse. Hey, seems like Just... our newses were co connected by a theme. There we go. This is a master of segue. This is research discovering the coloration of a fossil mouse in a novel way that has not been detected before. Ooh. This is research by Philip Manning et al. in Nature Communications. We will link to an article by uh, on Smithsonian Magazine by Bridget Katz. In Germany, researchers discovered two fossils of a small rodent, a mouse, named Apodemus atavis, which is this really small, mouse-sized, beautifully preserved mouse. These two fossils that are gorgeously preserved. So not only do they preserve the full skeleton, nearly the entire skeleton in both cases, but also soft tissue, so fur and stuff. 
So we've talked a lot about dinosaurs and birds that are preserved this way, Mm -hmm. where you've got the feathers laid out in the sediment around them. But it also happens with mammals every now and then. So these are little rodents that are still fuzzy in their fossil. Like I said, from Germany, 3 million years old, so Pliocene, not too long ago. There are plenty of examples of fossilized bird feathers and dinosaur feathers and fossilized skin traces that researchers have analyzed for remnants of pigments. So pigment molecules are molecules that contain certain materials that give off color. The most popular pigments that are studied in fossils are uh, molecules called melanosomes, and there are two types of pigment that are typically contained within those melanosome structures. Eumelanin, which gives off black, dark pigmentation, and then there's pheomelanin, which gives off reddish-brownish coloration. Mm -hmm. Previous research on fossils have looked at the shape of melanosomes to try to infer what kind of melanin was present, but chemical analysis has pretty much only focused on eumelanin, black or dark pigmentation, because no one knew how to find chemical traces of pheomelanin. Makes it difficult to study it. Well, guess what? Uh Uh-huh. Just a couple years ago, in 2016, another group of researchers discovered a molecular signature, an elemental signature, of pheomelanin in modern birds. So this research, the scientists attempted the same thing on these mice. They used synchrotron rapid scanning x-ray fluorescence imaging, (laughs) which is delightfully non-destructive. It just shines rays against the fossil and detects what comes back i love how sci-fi we've gotten in in detecting yeah invisible aspects of the fossil just a scanner yeah like this is literally this is like the uh the medical scanners that they use in star trek which i see you have this problem yes this is that for fossil oh yes it was blue yeah not quite that simple but but it's pretty so so the recent the, the previous research found that there is a unique combination of zinc and sulfur that is seen in pheomelanin. And these researchers studying these fossils found the same pattern in the the integument, the fur, of these mice on both specimens. Awesome. Which means a couple of things. One, it means that they could determine a coloration pattern that there was evidence of reddish-brown pigmentation across the the body, the whole body of both mice. Mm-hmm. Weaker pigmentation in the tail and feet, which is either just because of the preservation of the fossil, or it could be that they're like modern mice that have weaker pigmentation in the tail and feet. Yeah. And a white belly. Aww. It's also the first time pheomelanin has ever been chemically detected in the fossil record. That's awesome. With this new technique, researchers should now, hopefully, ideally, be able to go look at other fossils and detect this other class of pigment to give us an even wider range of color information for fossil organisms. I'm sure I've used this metaphor before, but I and I know I've said I say it almost every time we come across one of these these technologically aided studies that's a, a fairly new technique or or device i always love when we discover a new way of looking that can be applied to previously studied things 
Yes. But it makes me think of the Legend of Zelda games. When you go <laughs> through a dungeon and you see a thing and you know it's a thing, but you don't have the thing for it yet. Like, yep. And you set, now you have the chain shop and you go back through and you're like, oh, that's what that was. Oh, that's how I got to that. Oh, this. Yeah. I love that we now can just start scanning other potential, uh, uh, potentially applicable fossils. Yeah. We've unlocked the wing cap, and now we have to go back to the other levels mm-hmm. and fly around in them. Absolutely. And that's so cool. It's, it's bit, awesome. Bit by bit, we are just expanding our, literally, the image of fossil creatures, what they look like, just aspect by aspect, which is, uh, that's that's so surreal to me. And that's, What a time. It's, what a time. It's wonderful. Well, my next news, as I said is about another walking dinosaur. But this is another, this is a weird thing. So it's not color, but it has to do with (laughs) implied soft tissue. Okay. So this is research done on the feet of sauropods. So now we're going to the big lumbering ones. And little foot and friends. Yes. Except really big feet. Big feet. Big foot and friends. Wait. (laughs) (laughs) This is research by Andreas Janel et al. in the Journal of Morphology. Uh, this is a um, press release by the University of Queensland on, in phys.org. So this is research to try to figure out exactly how sauropods carried their weight. And they were basically just the question that we first asked when we found these ridiculously huge animals. How in the world were they supporting such extremely massive bodies and we've done research now that we know they can support it but how exactly were their feet handling it so they did some research and they decided to use a just a dinosaur as their their example their proxy this is roidosaurus brownii and this is australia's only named jurassic sauropod which is cool cool yeah it's dates back to about 160 170 million years ago and Estimated to be somewhere between twenty to forty tons in that you know, in that range of right, right, big sauropod, standard sauropod. Yeah, yeah. They were wanting to look at how it supported its weight, so they made replicas of the fossils that they could physically manipulate and used three D modeling to assist in creating different postures and seeing how they might have held the weight so the the model helped them see how do the bones actually interact how's the movement between the bone actually physically function and then the 3d model helped them create some postures on how it might hold weight both the bones and the models suggested that they walked with an elevated heel and by that they mean tiptoe hmm. so with their heel up in the air and their toes down on the ground this suggests the presence of a fleshy pad a high heel of soft tissue under the back of the foot, much like we see in elephants today. Uh, The article that we're going to link to, the press release, has a great picture of a cross-section of an elephant foot next to an x-ray of a human foot, and you can see that elephants are just walking on tiptoe with this big cushion under the heel. Cool. That's what it looks like sauropods must have been doing. So they took it a step forward and looked at a whole bunch of sauropod trackways the footprints from around the world that also seem to indicate the presence of a fleshy pad at the back of the foot 
So the bones seem to suggest this, 3D modeling seems to suggest this, and ichnofossils seem to suggest this. So it, it, it seems that they had a very similar foot to an elephant, which is not so surprising. Now yeah. we just need to look into the fact that they were about five times as heavy as an elephant. So <laughs> what differences were there to allow for that extra weight? It makes perfect sense to me to think that sauropods would have evolved the same sort of foot structure as elephants. Absolutely. Because I assume there's only so many ways to be huge. Well, it's it's kind of like it's really hard to make a skyscraper in just a oddball way. Like, there are some really good ways to support lots of weight. There yeah. are probably other ways you could do it, but I'd, I'd be surprised if they're just as viable. I also like that sauropods were... They, they maintained digitigrady. So, yeah. dear listeners... There are like animals today that walk on their toes like that. Cats, dogs, in fact, a lot of animals Most. walk on their toes like that, are walking on the fingers sort of laid against the ground while the rest, uh, the toes or the fingers, while the rest of the hand or foot is elevated. In the case of sauropods and elephants, they've stuck a pad underneath that elevated part. Mm-hmm. But like your cat and dog walk around on their, on their toes. On their tiptoes all the time. And then ungulagrade are the ones that stand on their actual tiptoes where they are like ballerinas. Yes. Like horses and most hoofed animals. Mm -hmm. We're plantigrade. We just... We plant the whole foot down on the ground. Us and bears. I was about to say, us and bears. I think think raccoons are plantigrade. Uh, Wombats as well. Yeah. Bats. Yep. When they walk around. Bats. I saw a bird at a recent place that I went to sitting back on its heel. Just resting not on the ground. It was a, a marabou stork. And it was oh, one of cool. the weirdest things I've ever seen. Because it's like, <laughs> that's what a plantigrade bird would look like. And that's that's what my, bizarre. <laughs> my cat does that. Yeah. She'll sit on her, her heel. It's so like, sit on her. That's weird. It <laughs> makes them look like a kangaroo. Well, my last bit of news is this might be, I haven't checked, the oldest fossil we've talked about in the news. Oh. It might not be. I, I might be forgetting stuff. Yeah, we have to see. But it's certainly it. up there. It's also potentially the oldest fungus in the fossil record. We have not touched on fungus nearly enough. We sure haven't. This is research by Corentin Loron in Nature, and we'll link to an article in Vice by Becky Ferreira. In the Grassy Bay Formation in the Canadian Arctic, researchers have pulled up super itty-bitty microfossils. And as we discussed in episode 22, Micropaleontology, we're not talking microfossils like little bits of bone, like what we do with the gray site. No. We actually microscopic, super hard to see fossils. Yes. That appear to be fungal and are dated to roughly between, that the formation is dated to roughly between 900 to 1,000 million years old. Wow. So a billion years old. Wow. Now, to put that into perspective, you remember the Cambrian explosion? We talked about that in episode nine. This is twice as old as that. This is twice as far (laughs) back. (sighs) They named the new species, because of course it's a new species, Orosphera giraldae. They identified based on morphology, based on the cell structure, based on the chemistry, the apparent chemistry of the cells. This is also the oldest evidence of chitin, which is the material that fungi build their cell walls out of. Make it out of chitons. Make it out of chitons, also found in bugs. Yep, because fungus are weird. This is not just, if true, the oldest evidence of fungus in the fossil record. The previous oldest fungi 
were from the famous Rhiney Chert in Scotland, which are 400 million years old. So just a, a, a scooch back. Just a little bit older. This wow. is also a date consistent with molecular clock estimates, so genetic uh, uh, age estimates, of when fungi might have arisen. Oh, really? So we may be looking at near the origins of fungi. That's very cool. This is exciting for a few reasons. Number one, it's a it's a, a, a glimpse into the origins of fungi. Very cool. Number two, the closest relatives of fungi are animals. Yep. Animalia, metazoans. So if fungi had already fully arisen by this time period, then that suggests they've already diverged from metazoans, our single-celled super-ancient ancestors. Mm-hmm. So how far back does the animal lineage go? Yeah. If we keep looking. Now, I, I, we're, you know, we're not going to find, you know, dragonflies <laughs> during the Proterozoic, but perhaps there are little single-celled or very simple metazoans, animal relatives out there as far back as a billion years, which is pretty cool. And finally, fungi are super important parts of their ecosystems. Oh, they are 100%. the principal decomposers in especially terrestrial ecosystems. Fungi are an essential part of the complex ecosystem webs that we have today. So it's possible that the presence of fungi all the way back a billion years ago in the Proterozoic could be an indication of more complex ecosystems mm-hmm. at that time period. Very, very cool. That's fungus are are already so alien and bizarre, and and, and just unnerving in how similar yet different they are. It's it's both amazing and almost no surprise that we find something fairly recognizable as a fungus that far back. Oh yeah, they've just been fungiing it up just for oh, a billion years. That's so. I also love. I love stuff like this because, you know, in in the Cambrian episode, we talked about the fact that we used to think the Cambrian explosion potentially was the origin of life. And we have so far left that behind now (laughs) that I love it. I love that. It's just that it's not even remotely the beginning. Like we've gone so far past that and still find life that it really it really opens up how. Uh, uh, much there is to discover when it comes to the early early days of life. Days. Days. The early days. <laughs> yes, yes. Many, many, many days. <laughs> <laughs> well, with the news newsed, shall we move on to discuss some of the coolest fossils in the world in amber? Before we get into the fossil record of amber, let's talk about what amber is. I, presumably, most of our listeners have seen amber. When I say amber, you have an image in your head. If you've seen Jurassic Park, then you've seen amber. Amber is what was on the tip of John Hammond's staff. Amber is this usually golden, orange, yellowish, transparent substance. Amberish? Amberish in color. Famous for containing inside of it the remains, oftentimes, of ancient organisms or of Aerodactyl. Amber, 
as if any if if you know anything about amber you probably know that amber is fossilized tree resin now here's an interesting thing that will not surprise any of you if you've listened to our podcast up to this point there's not really an actual good definition of what resin is yeah because sometimes you'll hear it called sap and in jurassic park they called it sap yep right it will get stuck in the sap yep but i've seen some sources that differentiate that sap is the fluid in the vascular system of a plant in the xylem and phloem Mm -hmm. and resin is stuff that is secreted outside of the plant for other purposes yes other sources distinguish between resin and gum oh or other exudates exudates things that trees release where some sources use resin for just every liquid that comes out of a tree Mm -hmm. and others say that, that that resin is specifically the liquids that can harden and last for a long time which like oils don't do that that plants release and yeah. gums don't necessarily do that whereas resin has certain composition it's made of certain substances that allow it to uh, so resin something it's the it's the um, megafauna of plant where it- it's well it's real it's like yeah hey words that don't have solid definitions right fossil it brings back yes it brings back uh, the the idea of when you hear people talk about blood, because sometimes I'll hear people talk about it and they're referring to red blood cells. Like, they're like, yeah, the blood, the red blood cells. But blood also includes plasma and platelets. Right. And it's I, I feel like it's kind of one of those where it's like, okay, but what do you mean? Are you referring to, you know, all of it? Are you referring to the red blood cells that make it blood or... What what fluid are you actually <laughs> focusing on? And plants are more complicated than we often give them credit for, so they have more than just oozy stuff. Yeah, so there's all sorts of different kinds of goop that comes out of plants, but resin is basically the, the goop. It's the stuff that becomes amber. Yeah, it's, it's fossilizable goop. <laughs> yes, that's honestly, some some of the definitions I've read of it are basically that. Yep. That it's the goop that can become fossilized into amber. <laughs> Meaning the important goop. Yeah, it's the stuff we care about. Yeah. Now, why plants release resin is also an interesting question. It has been suggested that at least some of the time it is a defense mechanism. Mm-hmm. Uh, some are known deterrents of bugs and such. Some have materials within them that are fungicidal yeah. or insecticidal. So they will actively kill uh, parasites and such. Other suggestions are that it is uh, resin is released in response to damage, that you'll see resin oozing out when a tree is injured, either by weather or by insects and stuff boring through it. Mm-hmm. Some trees uh, p- may, might use resin as an attractant to draw bugs in to say, come to me and pollinate me or whatever. It might be that resin is also a way to just get rid of waste, that it's basically just like, tree pee it's just here's all the stuff i don't want plants are gross <clears throat> but whatever the reason resin is released by lots of different kinds of trees conifers and angiosperms for probably lots of different reasons and it comes in lots of different forms but all of this resin all the resin that we're interested in has the ability to become hardened and persist for millions of years. 
inside resins if they are able to stick around. So just like any fossil, if they get eaten or stepped on or, you know, washed away or something, they're not going to fossilize. But if a resin is preserved, if it's buried in the soil or something, what'll happen, what can happen, is that certain materials in the resin evaporate and dissipate easily, the volatile materials, and the non-volatile materials stick around. Mm-hmm. So what you get before too long is this little hardened goo, sort of like if you've left some sort of candy around yeah. for too long, it's and like, it's kind of hardened up. It's like when you let just a little bit of soda in the bottom of your cup. Yes, and it just gets that, it's sort of, it's that a little syrup. hard, and it's it's that, yeah. Bleh. That, that really thick, viscous stuff. What begins to happen as the resin ages is that individual molecular units called monomers, hey, chemistry, <laughs> link together to form polymers. So you get these long chains of these molecules forming. This is a process called polymerization. Yep. And what it will do is it stiffens and hardens and rigidifies the resin and gives it more lasting power. Yes. Now, just like there is no actual definition of when a fossil becomes a fossil, there's no actual moment when resin becomes amber, but it does go through a middle stage that also is not actually well-defined that is often called copal. Oh. So you may have heard of copal. Copal is immature amber or semi-amber. Basically, copal is, you'll hear fossils referred to as subfossil when they're not quite old enough for us, for some people to call them fossils. They're not really fossilized yet, but they're still old. So they're subfossils. Copal is subfossil amber. It is resin that isn't quite fully amberized. It has slightly different hardness, slightly different solubility. Copal is the word that's typically used for resins, ancient resins that are hundreds to thousands of years old. Depending depending on who you ask, there are copals that are perhaps millions of years old. Wow. It's just amber, but not quite amber yet, but maybe amber, but it's one of, it's that gradient I, I, in the middle. I feel like it's probably uh like it's not quite possible to fully decide when at what point batter and cake, you know, it's, yeah. As it's baking. You know when it's batter and you know when it's cake, but that in-between part, how cooked is cooked? Is it 50% cooked? Is it 30, 60% cooked? Yeah. That part is copal. Yeah. Copal is the weird cake batter that's not cake yet. <laughs> Oftentimes what you see in copal, copal comes from trees that are still alive since it's relatively young. And if there's stuff inside the copal, it ten, tends to be still living species. Which is cool. But eventually, it will fully harden and become what most geologists would be comfortable calling amber. Amber is not a mineral. Here's a little geology for you, everybody. The word mineral has a very specific definition, and two things that a mineral cannot be are organic and amorphous. This is one of the things that is well-defined. Yes. (laughs) Ice is a mineral. Because it is solid, inorganic, and has a defined, consistent molecular structure. Mm-hmm. Amber is organic in origin, and it's not structured. It's just goop that solidified. There's no molecular, like crystalline structure mm-hmm. to it. It's also extremely variable. 
Lots of people have tried to tackle how to classify amber. There are different groups. There's I've, I've heard it said that there are two major types of amber, depending on what they're made of. But there are also classes of amber. There are at least five different classes of amber based on what their comp- composition is, what sorts of things they're made of. And within those classes, there are subclasses, depending on where you find it, how it was made, what kind of plant made it. There are all different kinds of amber made of different stuff. The colors vary. So amber ranges from orange, yellow, red, white, brown, green. There's blue amber, famously, from the Dominican. And just like minerals tend to get, amber has received a whole bunch of different names. (laughs) So depending on where it came from, what color it is, how opaque it is, you will hear all different words for amber. So sometimes you'll hear resonite. Mm-hmm. Which is amber. It is basically petrified, fossilized resin, resinite. You might also hear succinite, gedonite, grantsite, beckerite, stantianite, glessite, trophite, delatinite, gelinite, and those are all the ones that I wrote down. <laughs> it's just super variable. There's so much diversity in amber. Well, and especially when it's something that could be found all around the world. It's one of those that it it is absolutely hit, has been discovered in human history independently multiple times. Oh, yes. And so, you know, each country is going to have its own history of <laughs> their initial understanding. And probably that will help that would that will end up skewing them toward going, you know, OK, well, now we all know we're talking about the same thing. But like but we we call it resonate because that's what we originally you know, like. Yeah, you know, Right. So it's picked up a lot of names. I'm known by many names. (laughs) Yes, the breaker of chains, mother of dragons. (laughs) Also made by a variety of plants. Today, we know a bunch of different coniferous trees, gymnosperms, and angiosperms, flowering plants. But it can be very difficult to link an amber to what kind of tree it made. Lots of ambers are assigned to a group of conifers called the Oracaraceae, which include the modern-day New Zealand cowrie tree. Others have been suggested to have come from pine trees, cedar, cypress, locust trees. But there's also been some suggestion that this might, that the way we're trying to identify it might not be a good way to do it. Mm -hmm. So sometimes you'll see a resource that'll say the the amber in this region came from pine trees. And that might, that might be harder to tell than we think it is. Well, it makes sense that it would be difficult to nail down which plant made the amber if by design amber is the leftover bit of resin you know that there stuff has been lost to concentrate it down to oh yeah this thing so who knows what you lost like (laughs) it's it's real and there's even though there are techniques to try to replicate uh speed up fossilization degradation in labs not everyone agrees on how reliable those techniques are. So it's it's really hard to know exactly what steps different ambers would have gone through and what the end results would have looked like. Indeed, indeed. Amber also comes in a lot of different shapes. So the classic sort of blob of amber is thought to have rolled down the tree and then fallen off and become fossilized as a little blob. Mm-hmm. But you can also get amber 
that comes from resin that forms inside fissures in a tree. Oh, that's cool. And just takes the shape of the tree fissure. Oh, it's like those those tables they make out of the driftwood with the the uh, yes. the <laughs> plastic resin. And you can get amber uh, formed by resin that formed on the outside of a tree and can even preserve the imprint of the bark nice. in the amber. And one of my favorites is you can have amber that so you can have resin that was dripping off a tree as this stalactite or icicle shaped thing that then falls off and preserves like that. Yes, I was ho- I was so hoping <laughs> so you could get amber sickles. That That's fantastic. When we're looking at amber in the fossil record, it is important to remember that amber is typically, here's a vocab word for you, alochthonous, which means not found in the place where it was formed. Alochthonous monster. Alochthonous. <laughs> <laughs> and indeed, it's usually found in the water. <laughs> amber is rarely found with the tree that formed it. Sometimes it is, like with roots or associated mm-hmm, with bark. Mm-hmm. More often, it will be associated with coal, just coal seams, or transported by water. Uh, amber floats in salt water, and oh. so it can be transported all sorts of places. A lot of times, we find amber in estuarine deposits or ocean deposits. And in fact, for years and years and years, you can... People have been collecting amber on beaches because it washes up on shore like, you know, shark teeth and stuff. Yep, yep. So amber comes from all different places in all different forms. It is super variable, but there are a few places in the world where amber is particularly famous. Starting at the beginning, the oldest amber in the fossil record, reported in 2009, comes from a deposit in Illinois from the Carboniferous period. It is around 320 million years old. Wow. By, a, by, by far the oldest amber in the fossil record. This is at a time that there should not have been angiosperms, but the amber has the chemical composition that we expect from angiosperm plants. Interesting. Which suggests two things. One that this type of amber may have arisen convergently Mm -hmm. in two different types of plants, and two, that using chemistry to determine what kind of plant your amber came from is probably harder than we once thought. Yeah, that's a very uh, uh, dangerous bit of evidence because it's either (laughs) strong conversion or earlier rise of angiosperms or faulty technique. Yeah, or we're wrong about amber. All, all three of which are not just like little small issues. That's Those are all big That's things. That's a big deal. <laughs> After that, in the Mesozoic is when the famous deposits of amber show up. The two most famous deposits of amber in the Mesozoic, uh, one is Lebanese amber from Lebanon. There are hundreds of outcrops around Lebanon that have the, this amber that dates to the late Jurassic to early Cretaceous. Which is pretty cool. Mm-hmm. And it is indeed in the Cretaceous that amber becomes much more widespread. Cool. This is interesting because it raises the question of why was there so much more resin all of a sudden to become fossilized? Mm-hmm. And one suggestion that has been pointed out is that the expansion of amber, the, the sort of rise of abundant amber in the Cretaceous period is coincident in time 
with the expansion of certain groups of wood-boring insects. And indeed, boring beetles and other wood-boring insects are very commonly preserved in amber. Makes sense. So some have suggested that that, that resin production may have kicked up in response to damaging insects. Yeah, yeah, uh, uh, invasive uh, parasitic insects for the plants. Indeed, indeed. The most famous deposit of Mesozoic amber is in northern Myanmar. This is Burmese amber. Yeah. We, we've mentioned this once or twice. Oh, yeah, once or twice. <laughs> I'm pretty sure every bit of amber we've ever discussed in the news has been, well, maybe not all, but most of them. Pretty close. Pretty have close. Have been <laughs> Burmese amber. You'll hear Burmese amber a lot in the latter half of this episode. Yeah, it's it's the, um, the, the you know, the famous the famous older brother of the amber deposits. Yes, late Cretaceous, around 100 million years ago, lots of famous dino stuff, because this is age of the dinosaurs. This is where you get your ancient bird feathers and things like that. As we move into the Cenozoic, the most famous amber deposit in the world, the largest and most famous, and as far as I can tell, oldest known not oldest geologically, but we've known about it the longest, is Baltic amber. If you are picturing amber in your head, there's a very good chance you're picturing Baltic amber. This is the amber that defined amber. Cool. Baltic amber is found all around the Baltic Sea in Northern Europe. It dates to the Eocene, 40 to 50 million years ago. Baltic amber commonly is found along the shores of the Baltic Sea and in nearby places in countries like Denmark, Sweden, Germany, Poland, Russia, Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, and yet more. It is the world's largest single deposit of amber that we know of. It is estimated that the ancient forest that produced this amber produced over 100,000 tons of it. That's ridiculous. Baltic amber is pretty insane. Wow. Moving yet younger, the last super famous amber deposit that I'll mention is Dominican amber in the Dominican Republic. Younger, around the Oligocene to Miocene, 25 or so million years old. Dominican amber is famous for including, not exclusively, but including blue amber. Neat. Which is neat. It's, I love, I, I love that there's a blue amber. I, I don't know exactly <laughs> why I... It looks very cool. But that is so neat. <laughs> There's blue amber. It's like blue kryptonite. That's just Yes, awesome. it is. Yes, it, it insects are weakened by blue amber. <laughs> There's amber in lots of other places. There are famous amber deposits in Mexico, Canada, Greenland, New Zealand, and a bunch of other places. Amber typically is thought to represent ancient tropical or subtropical environments, because that's where you're probably going to find these trees that are producing it. Amber has been used by humans for a very long time for very many purposes. The oldest evidence that I know of, there may be more of this, but the oldest one that I came across of humans gathering amber is in the Baltic region at least 13,000 years ago. Wow! Which suggests that humans have been gathering amber from Northern Europe for about as long as humans have been in the Americas. <laughs> what we <laughs> This is what we came for. <laughs> is... Also for all, about as long as humans have had domesticated animals. 
<laughs> well, obviously, discovering amber is what unlocked the domestication. Yes, skill that tree. was always oh, it that. It's that that blue amber. <laughs> Quest completed. Can domesticate animals. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Uses of amber have included obviously use in art, in jewelry. More recently, uh, amber is apparently used in smoking accessories like cigar holders and the mouthpieces of pipes. It's huh. used in skincare products and incense and medicinal use. This is not a medical podcast. Please do not accept that as advice. I don't know what medicinal use amber is allegedly supposed to have. Probably lots of stuff, depending on where you are. There is even amber worked into architecture. So there's a, pl- a famous place, a building in St. Petersburg, that has an amber room, which has decorated in part with amber cool and in saint bridget's church in gdansk poland there is an amber altar that is also partially made out of amber i wonder what material amber is analogous to to work it's very soft yeah that's what i would assume Amber's like a two or three on the the mose hardness scale like it, so it, it's like talc it'd be really hard i i would be very surprised if it had become i guess gypsum it's more like gypsum really rigid. i mean i guess drywall is gypsum isn't it yeah it's it's gypsum base so hmm. I, I wonder i just i i wonder when you work I guess it plaster of paris is gy- i don't know if drywall is the same i think thing. It, i think drywall includes gypsum but I, it's not i don't think it's just gypsum i think it's gypsum hmm. byproduct stuff but like i don't know i just now i'm curious i want to look up someone working it does it does it chip does it carve like wood or does it is it like hmm. a really dense plastic interesting can you melt it down and forge it into weapons to fight off zombies exactly like these are important questions but the most important use of amber at least for this podcast <laughs> is as a research subject yes Amber is itself a trace fossil. It is the it is made by an organism. So like coprolites, episode 30, it is a remnant. It is something made by an organism. But it is most paleontologically famous for inclusions. Yes. Inclusions is the sciencey term that means stuff in the amber. Remember Jurassic Park. A bug would land on a tree and get stuck in the sap. Stuff gets trapped in the amber. In the, in the resin, as the resin is gooping down the tree or filling a cavity. Yeah, when it's still it fluid. Can, when it's still fluid, it can capture bits of plants, microbes, fungi, and animals, especially insects. Yeah. The oldest known amber inclusions, at least as, as, as of 2012, when the paper that I found was, was, was published, are from the Triassic in Italy at 230 million years old awesome preserved insects and from then on it's just insects and other stuff galore (laughs) all sorts of cool inclusions in amber before we get into what preserves in amber let's talk a little bit about how yeah what makes the preservation in amber so unique much of the preservation within amber is dehydration basically amber i've seen it referred to as an as an extreme form of mummification Yeah. The body inside, so picture a bug, an ant that is stuck in the amber, is dehydrated, loses its water, and is captured, which means, like is good for fossilization, protected from outside forces. It's it's literally almost like a stasis field. It just... 
Yes. Locks them in as they were. And because it is this it's a gentle process, it's not damaging the 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 inclusion, at least not always, as it's covering it. It also prevents the carcass from collapsing. Yeah. It's not getting crushed or anything. The amber is, the resin completely surrounds it, so it can sit there. The resin can preserve minute details. It can preserve color information. It preserves the 3D shape. And because some resins have antibiotic properties, (laughs) it can also protect what's inside from decay. Yes. The bacteria and stuff can't get it. However, it's not perfect. Resin, as the resin is flowing, it can twist and break stuff. So there are ambers where you can see that a bug has lost a limb because the amb- the resin basically pulled it apart mm-hmm. as it was flowing over it. Oftentimes, any fungi or other microbes that were in the creature when it got captured stick around for a while. So a lot of the internal tissue still decomposes and degrades away. That's not always the case. We can find evidence of soft tissue in amber. It's thought that 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 happens when the dehydration happens quickly. You can get muscle tissue and protein remains and things like that. Other times the amber, the, the, the insect or whatever in the amber will be surrounded by a milky halo. That is as the, the, the stuff released by decomposition interacts with the resin It'll create this sort of colored halo around it. Interesting. That makes sense. But you can get exceptional preservation down to microscopic levels in amber. As with any fossil form, though, it's not a perfect trap. It's not capturing everything equally. As we'll talk about here in a second, amber does in fact capture things that otherwise don't fossilize. That, that fall through the sieve of the fossil record by preservation bias. But amber itself also has preservation bias. Yes, it does. For example, almost everything you will ever see preserved inside amber is very, very small. Tiny little insects, tiny little bits of plants, because big stuff has a harder time getting trapped and is more likely to be broken yes. or like eaten when it's half trapped in the resin or something Mm -hmm. well it's uh, the equivalent of us you know something our size getting trapped in resin is when your hands get all sticky after you carry around a christmas tree (laughs) right and then you're like oh oh oh, eh." and even on the insect scale most of what you see in amber is millimeter scale yeah so we're not talking like a grasshopper we're talking like gnats and tiny little flies and things Most of the things that are trapped in amber are also things that were on or inside the tree. Mm -hmm. So you're not getting desert organisms and you're not getting, you know, the the thing that walked by the tree isn't going to get trapped in amber. Yeah, things down on the forest floor aren't necessarily going to show up. The environment that it's in can affect the formation of resin. So how much light there is, how much moisture there is can affect whether your resin survives in the first place. And here's something that I thought was super interesting. I found a paper that made the note that most insects found in amber are spring and summer species. That that makes sense. If you have insects that are active during the winter, you're not going to get those because the trees are inactive. 
yeah, trees, plants go, for the most part, dormant. Yeah. When things get cold. So there's all these biases within amber. But all that being said, amber preserves some of the coolest, most incredible, most remarkable fossils in the fossil record. They are incredible. They, they are... Sometimes it is almost looks like it's been faked in how well-preserved oh, yeah. the inclusion so is. So cool. As long as, just like with any fossils, you keep in mind the biases of the record, you can find some really fascinating stuff. We're going to take a short break, but when we get back from the break, we're going to talk about all the cool things that Amber can preserve for us that make it unique. But first... After the break, we're going to talk very briefly about the Velociraptor in the room. And why it's not here. And discuss the one very notable thing that Amber does not (laughs) preserve. Stay tuned. We have talked about... DNA and Jurassic Park and Amber a few times before. We did episode 23 was all about Jurassic Park. We did a whole series about Jurassic Park, Silver Screen Science last June. Episode 34 was about ancient DNA. So we won't rehash too much of that, but a brief history of the relationship between DNA and Amber. The 1980s was the first time people were able to pull ancient DNA out of old preserved specimens. And through the 90s was when we got super excited about the realization that we could get DNA out of fossils. Yes. There were lots of reports in the 90s, especially in the early 90s, of DNA coming out of amber specimens that were millions to tens of millions of years old. It was a very exciting time. They were wrong. Yep. As the 90s wore on, lots of attempts to reproduce those results consistently failed. I found one report that cites three papers from the later 90s, mid to late 90s, that between all three of them tried more than 45 amber specimens in both Dominican and Baltic amber, places where it had been reported before that they had found DNA. And they found contaminants, but no ancient DNA. Awkward. As the 90s wore on, we got into the 2000s. The scientific community started to have many, many reasons to suspect that those earlier reports were due to contamination from modern microbes, modern insects. And we just have never had a good reproducible case of DNA coming out of ancient amber. The dual nails in the coffin on that one came in the 2010s. First in 2012, when the famous study that we've we've talked about before attempted to discern the half-life of DNA, basically the lifespan of DNA at, in natural environments, and determined that even in the best conditions, DNA isn't expected to last more than 1 million, maybe 2 million years. Mm-hmm. And then there was a study in 2013 by Penny et al. that decided to look at much younger resins and test for DNA. They took two samples of copal, one that had been dated to around 10,000 years old, and the other that was, here's a term for you, 
post-bomb. Oh. Now, what that means is, so carbon dating relies on a certain amounts of radioactive carbon in the atmosphere. And as it turns out, in like the 1950s or so, we really messed up the amounts of radioactive carbon in the atmosphere because we started blowing up uh, nuclear weapons. Oops. So the carbon record gets all messy around the 1950s, which makes it very difficult to date stuff. What is it good for? Ruining carbon dating. Ruining carbon dating. So the post-bomb specimen was younger than 60 years. Ah. So one specimen at several thousand, several millennia, and another specimen at several decades old, each with a stingless bee inside. They ground up both specimens and tested for DNA. They found contaminant DNA. They found no bee DNA. Which is, that's, that's pretty strong evidence. At decades old. Yeah. Even in the post-bomb specimen, even in the one that was under 60 years, no what's called endogenous, right? The original DNA, which suggests that amber is not a great place for DNA preservation. Yeah. That study actually suggests, they say at the end, that this indicates that DNA survival is no better and perhaps worse than just sitting in an air-dried museum cabinet. <laughs> <laughs> like if you went into a museum and it's like, oh, these insects have been laying out in this cabinet for 60 years, you are at best as likely to find <laughs> DNA, if not more likely, than in amber. Something about amber is just not conducive to DNA preservation. I mean, if it is a mummification process, that, that extreme drying out might just break things down. And amber is full of all sorts of different compounds yeah. and different chemicals that can react with things. And DNA is delicate, super fragile. But the takeaway is no one has ever to date reliably gotten DNA out of amber. Sorry, Mr. Hammond. Sorry, Mr. DNA. <laughs> Someone lied to you about where they got that dinosaur DNA from. <laughs> <laughs> that being said, and I always hate that part. I've mentioned this before. I hate whenever I have to start a discussion with, no, no, we didn't find DNA. Here's the hard facts. Because the rest of this episode is going to be awesome. Mm -hmm. Let me tell you about the cool stuff we do find in Amber. Amber allows us to see things that don't normally fossilize. Yes. Things that normally escape the fossil record. I'm going to list a bunch of examples. Over the remainder of this episode, you will hear me say things like, there's one specimen that is blah. And I want you to keep in mind that there are hundreds of specimens that are blah. I'm only giving you a few. <laughs> Am there's so many cool things in amber, Will. It's too many. Too many. And you could go through just one example of a certain thing being preserved and have a list of cool examples. I'm going to focus on a few categories of cool things. The first one is just organisms that don't normally preserve. The most obvious is bugs. Yeah. Insects tend to avoid... Insects, mites, spiders. These are things that tend to avoid fossilization because they're tiny, they're delicate, they're yeah. soft. They're, they're not very... like I mean, for their size, they're tough, but not, not compared to other big stuff. No. Easily broken down before fossilization can take them. But amber 
preserves flies and mites and gnats and moths and butterflies and the kinds of things you don't normally see. This also means that a lot of the time, the stuff we find in amber is new species because there's just no other options for finding them. Like if you find a piece of an ant in 100 million year old Burmese amber, you don't have any other 100 million year old ants. That's the only source of that for the most part. It's like when they dive down to the extreme abyssal depths of the ocean. Almost every time we've gone down there, and I believe every trip that has been made down there <laughs> probably new species i don't think i've ever heard of one where they're like and we didn't discover anything we didn't expect to see yeah uh, no nothing nothing exciting this time guys we have discovered a new species the vast majority on to be on the safe side but almost every single time we discover something new because of course how else are you going to find any of those things they're not washing up on the beach there's no way for those to get up to you when you're in the mariana's trench like this is the fossil equivalent of that, which is <laughs> just incredible. One discovery that I actually, I remember, I wrote about this for Earth Touch uh, a couple of years ago, back in 2017. Well, I'll put, man, so many links, so many links <laughs> in the blog post, was an insect in Burmese amber, late Cretaceous, that was a new order of insects. I remember that one. Not a new species, genus, family, a new order of insects. A 2018 paper reviewed millipedes from Burmese amber and concluded that there have been 460 new species of millipedes identified from Burmese amber. Jeez. Another article I read cited that in 2018 alone, researchers discovered 321 new species in Burmese amber. That that's unnecessary. <laughs> Too much. It's gratuitous. Cut it out, Myanmar. It's wow. crazy. Sometimes these are being dug up by scientists, but in Myanmar, a lot of it is coming from markets. So yeah. we've talked about Lita Shing and and colleagues a bunch in the news where they go to the Myanmar markets and just walk around and go and look for amber and go, oh hey, this is a cool thing. I'm taking it and I'm gonna, I'm buying it. They buy it and then yeah. research it. <laughs> this is mine now. This is I'm taking it. In addition to insects, we also get vertebrate fossils in amber, salamanders, lizards, uh, all sorts of things, usually with soft tissue preserved. Yeah. Dehydrated as always, but you can get muscle and skin, nerve remnants, uh, cellular details. There was a paper just last year in 2018 that found frogs. There's a bunch of frogs in amber. In 2016, in Burmese amber, there was that very famous dinosaur tail, a tail covered in feathers that was not only super cool, but also allowed researchers to identify a previously unknown type of feather. Yeah. In 2017, uh, Lita Shing and friends found a baby enantiornithine bird in Burmese amber that was fresh out of the egg. And allowed the researchers to determine that it was precocial. It was ready to go right after hatching. Which is information we would not have otherwise seen in the fossil record. Yeah, we, I mean, we mentioned that sort of stuff in uh, our behavior discussion. Yeah, last episode. Last episode. It takes a lot of different lines of evidence to get that sort of, con to draw that sort of conclusion. 
but Amber gives you a pretty dead-on look because it's the actual infant. So sometimes it can let you make what would be a very big hypothesis and observation that you would need lots of lines of support for. But if it's in Amber, yeah, that's pretty good. And last year in 2018 uh, was discovered the best piece of Amber ever. (laughs) <laughs> yes. which was another piece of Burmese amber that had a baby snake in it only because crocs don't get stuck baby sna- how big is a hatchling croc uh six seven eight inches long it's not impossible yeah it's not impossible and they there are ones that climb trees so they could there you go but who's who's to say this anyway onto important stuff this baby snake <laughs> which we talked about in the news when it came out is it was the, the fossil includes 97 bones of the snake and it's two inches or five centimeters long. Adorable. It's so it's just so itty bitty. Other cool stuff that has been preserved in amber. Here's a bonus bit of news. So this is actually a bit of news that we considered for the news section this episode. And I decided to put it in here. Within the last couple of weeks, researchers identified for the first time ever an ammonite in amber. What? An ammonite in amber. Like that's a that lives in the ocean. What? <laughs> it was fossilized alongside terrestrial insects and oceanic snails. <laughs> it's just so weird. It may be that the resin flowed like onto a beach mm-hmm. or something, or that it was high tide. Believe it or not, there are other cases of marine fossils in amber. There was a study that I found that cited uh, uh, examples of amber with marine plankton and, you know, foraminifera and such in it that they said were probably, as they said, it introduced to trees <laughs> by wind or spray, like yeah. waves crashing on the shore or high tide. There was a 1996 report of a crab in Mexican amber that That's may have been near the roots or something. And that crab was found alongside mangrove pollen. Yes. So you're looking at submerged trees. I love it. One of my favorite find, rare finds in amber, rare occurrences, is not to leave out our botanical friends. We'll just got that joke. It took him <laughs> just a second. <laughs> <laughs> from Baltic amber from Russia, in from dating to the Eocene, two tiny, tiny leaves of a carnivorous plant. Ooh, that's cool. With sticky tendrils that would have been used for catching bugs like a sundew similar to a plant in south africa called roridula which is cool because those are only known from south africa and this amber came from russia wow also carnivorous plants have practically no fossil record so that it's super cool discovery it's not surprising it's not like they we're just uh lousy with carnivorous plants no and they're tropical and again one of the cool yes. things about amber is Tropical fossils are rare, and amber is a great way to get them. Because there's lots of trees in them, they're tropics. And finally, for this category, in 2003, from Lebanese amber, early Cretaceous, 130 million years ago, researchers reported a single thread of spider silk in amber with glue droplets on it. That's so awesome. The oldest known example of sticky spider silk this one makes me think of a um xkcd comic about about future entities yes, i remember this one yep time traveling back and 
they're coming back to see spiders. People are like, why are you coming back to see spiders? Like, they're all the rage in the future. Like, we love them. What's this sticky thing it's caught in? That's a web. <laughs> they, <laughs> they made, made webs? webs? And then one of them just paused. Yep. Dinosaurs must have been so weird. Yep. Like, how how often do you get web fossils? Practically never. Practically never. This is awesome. One of the coolest things that Amber is able to show us, hearkening back to the last episode, is signs of behavior in the fossil record. Because what better way to capture behavior than to capture an organism in a little time capsule? Like, literally frozen in the instant. Now, we do have to be careful with this, because it can be easy to see an, an insect in amber and assume that whatever position it's in was its life position. But it's important to remember that it takes us a little bit for the amber to flow over it. And so oftentimes we will see signs of stress. Yeah. Or struggling. It's like the worst quicksand ever. So there are cases, for example, of ants preserved in amber biting each other, which doesn't necessarily mean that they were eating each other, but that they may have been trying to pull themselves out of the resin by grabbing onto another ant. Yeah, when like a, a panicking or a in distress ant just bites. Yep. Just, just, it, that's their that's your defense. I can't figure out anything else to do bite. There are lots of examples of insects caught in amber laying eggs or pooping out of stress. Yeah. Like the body's just like, oh, you get all this stuff out of here. Yeah. <laughs> drop, drop some weight. We got to move. It's really crazy what will happen there. Uh, my dad caught a, a mouse on a job site one time. And he was just like, yeah, I'll remove this mouse. I don't want to leave a mouse around someone's house just out of laziness. So he caught in a bucket. And as soon as she got in the bucket, she started panicking and gave birth to two babies. Just immediately. Oh, jeez. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> get them out. Get them out. Like, so that makes sense that it would happen. Just like. <laughs> Eggs, go! Save yourselves! Sometimes it can also be post-mortem. Yeah. That just poop is released. We talked in episode 30 about fossil flatulence in amber. Poop farts. There is at least one case I saw cited of an ejaculation caught in amber. Which is both hilarious and amazing. Oh, it's so cool. So behaviors in amber are fun, but we have to be careful. Well, because it's... Even if you think back to the scene from... Jurassic Park, the clip where they show the mosquito getting rolled over, like it's not something that just like freezes them. It it is a little landslide, you know, and so it's gonna push them over. It's gonna flip them around. Like I've seen spiders in amber, and they look like all contorted because their legs are getting thrown in all different directions, trying to stop themselves from getting captured. Mm -hmm. Some of the best cases of amber, and some of the best examples of showing behavior are ambers that have what are called sin inclusions which means you caught more than one thing ah what's super cool about this in amber is that amber resin forms and hardens pretty quickly so if you find two things in amber you are almost guaranteed to have found two things that were in the same place on the same day if not within the same several seconds to minutes so we can interpret all sorts of behavior here's some examples one of the most obvious cases is feeding behavior. So there are plenty of examples of, for example, ants in amber carrying food. Yay! So I've seen a, a citation for an ant carrying a bit of plant that it cut, like a, like a leaf cutter ant. 
uh, ants carrying animal bits around. There are bees that have been found in amber with pollen on them. Oh, that's cool. There have been uh, uh, amber amberized, amber preserved insects that today are known to be ant hunters or termite hunters that are preserved in amber alongside ants and termites. <laughs> suggesting that their habits have been preserved for millions of years. I, I love the image of this, this predator sneaking up on an ant and then both getting stuck in the amber, ant noticing the predator and just, well, this is awkward. <laughs> just just for, for, for 20 million years, yeah. we're just staring at each other. <laughs> for the next few minutes as they slowly are encased. <laughs> you gonna eat me? No. There are cases of amber with that preserves spider silk with bugs trapped in it. And in 2012, there is a very famous publication of a piece of amber with spider web and a wasp caught in the web and a spider going after the wasp. That's just, that is hard to believe. Like if someone just said, what if we found a spider that caught something in its web? In amber, I'd be like, okay, that's a cool idea, but I mean, come on. Oh yeah, so, oh, that'd, that'd be cool. Write that'd a book be neat. About it. That'd be neat. We can like put it in a cartoon or something, <laughs> but that's not going to happen. Well, so part of the reason for this is the law of large numbers. Yep. There are so many amber pieces with stuff in them that I, eventually you find something incredible. Mm-hmm. Also, there's so many bugs. Most of these examples are bugs. That's the other large number is arthropods. There's a lot of them. They're everywhere. Get used to it. Other ca- examples of behavior that you can find are social behavior, including reproductive behavior. There are lots of examples of amber with uh, insects in them caught in the act of mating. <laughs> so I've seen the. So you'll know. You know how you'll see like dragonflies in the spring with their butts together. Yeah, they connect. They dock. There are amber preserved things like flies and stuff in that position, butt to butt in mating position, preserved in amber. Well, and the crazy thing about those is, because for some of these, it, it it had to have happened at some sort of speed to have preserved them. But in a lot of these, they may have gotten stuck. And a lot of those insects, they can't just stop mating. You're, you're locked together until it's done. And if one of you gets stuck, both of you get stuck. There is at least one case I read about of a Dominican amber specimen with a spider in it carrying a silk case of eggs oh yes in 2015 there was a report of a scale insect a flightless uh uh, beetle-like insect with in burmese amber with 60 eggs on her abdomen wow she was just carrying her eggs around carrying her brood it's it, it is i think the oldest fossil evidence of brood care that's awesome in insects we talked last year, 2018, one of our newses was about the lace wings in Lebanese amber that had just hatched and still had their little masks that they used to break out of the eggs. Right. One of my favorite examples was a 1999 report of a piece of Dominican amber that had a new ant species in it. Most of these are new species. I think everything I've listed so far has been a new species. Yeah, absolutely. This one had 92 ants in it (laughs) including worker ants larvae pupae and eggs 
apparently a colony, like it caught a yeah. chunk of a colony, and it includes preserved ants carrying eggs and pupae. Oh, that's so awesome. <laughs> so a snapshot of life in the colony of Dominican, so 20 million years ago in the Dominican Republic. That's incredible. Even better, Will. Well, there's this it's so cool. There is I read in one of the papers I read a citation of a piece of Dominican amber that preserves a worker termite in the process of feeding a soldier. What? So, dear listeners, in a lot of ant and termite species, the soldiers are so specialized that their mouth parts are good for killing, but not good for eating. Yep. So the workers have to feed them. Which is awesome. Caught in amber. That's ridiculous. It's so cool. Amber's so cool. Like, amber's so cool that it is preserving behaviors that most people don't know happen. Yes. <laughs> and then, my last example of reproductive social behavior, uh, again, to appease our botany friends. 2014 report of Burmese amber of with flowers in it, where... At the microscopic level, researchers noticed that the amber had caught one of these flowers with pollen inside the flower with the pollen tubes extended and growing into the stigma. Wow. So, dear listeners, the pollen is carrying the male stuff. The stigma has the female stuff, which means that this flower was caught in the process of fertilization of the seed. Wow. It's so cool. Amber is so cool. It's why I use the term stasis field before. This is yes. <laughs> this is very much like a sci-fi frozen in carbonite situation where just ridiculous things and ridiculous detail captured in the instant that it was encapsulated and then unchanged from that point on. But my favorite category of, so of associations in amber are examples of parasitism. There are lots of examples of bugs that have been found with mites on them or smaller bugs on them. There, is a, there was a 2015 report of Burmese amber that included within it some of the oldest known grass fossils. And on the grass was ergot fungus. Huh. A parasitic, parasitic type of fungus. There have been lice found on mammalian hairs. In 2017, there's that famous example of a tick in Burmese amber clutching a dinosaur feather. Mm -hmm. There are also examples of fungus and worms being preserved inside of insects in amber. So not just external parasites, but internal parasites, which is very, very exciting. Absolutely. There is a famous report from 2015 of a flea inside Dominican amber that had bacteria inside of it that the researchers noted was morphologically similar to the plague. Oh, that's weird. Which suggests that the plague, or something plague-like, has been associating with fleas for 20 million years. Oh, that's, that's cool. Which is very cool. <gasps> You want to hear my favorites? Okay. There is at least one bit of amber I've seen numerous pictures of, of a fly with a nematode coming out of it. Ew. 
probably trying to escape it as it died. Yes. There is a piece of amber that was report Baltic amber, reported in 2002 of an ant with the larva of a parasitic wasp <gasps> in the process of coming out of it. Oh, that's amazing. There are also reports of insects being caught in amber in the process of depositing their eggs in other insects. So at least one of a parasitic wasp depositing eggs in a caterpillar and then caught in amber. This would be like if someone... This is how ridiculous these fossils are. (laughs) This would be like if at Pompeii there were two people caught as one was stabbing the other one to mother. Yeah, <laughs> sneaking up on him and stabbing him. <laughs> and then they both got caught in the ash. Like, that's oh. what this is like. That's ridiculous. But my absolute favorite, I did not know about this one before I started looking into this. Will, do you remember that episode of Planet Earth <laughs> with the cordyceps fungus? Yes. Dear listeners, there are fungi today, like cordyceps, that will attack and infect insects and then kill them and grow out of them. Yep. There is a piece of amber. Again, there are actually multiple of these, but the one I'm going to talk about, and if I can find a picture of it, I'll put it up on the blog post. Dominican amber with a bark louse inside of it with a cinema, which is a stalk of fungal uh, uh, growth, emerging from the body of the, the louse and the fungal stalk is way bigger than the bug. <laughs> wow. It looks like the image from planet Earth, the one of the ant with the yes. stalk coming out of its head. It's coming out of this la- louse. It's caught in amber. It's one of my new favorite fossils. It's so cool, man. <laughs> that I saw another one of, I think it was a spider with two fungal stalks growing out of it. In amber, oh, amb- amber is pretty neat, guys. Wow, it, it these these really w- once again had they been described to me with just as the concept, I never would have put any money down that we would have found fossils of these. These are incredible, and there's it's more than just that they're a cool occurrence. These kinds of fossils of behavior and association, what they tell us is that these sorts of things have been going on for a long time. Yeah, that this is That's... a long-lasting relationship between fungus and insect or parasitoid and other yep. bugs. These are from, I mean, the Dominican louse with the fungus coming out of it is 20 million years old. The wasp, the, the wasp larva coming out of an ant is Baltic. That's Eocene. Yes. That's 40 or 50 million years ago. That's pretty darn cool. You know, there's a lot of these things that we could probably infer are a very long-lasting behavior that showed up a long time ago just because of how specialized the two organisms interacting are to one another. But having definitive proof, definitive evidence of this behavior locks in. that We know up to 20, up to 40 million years ago, these things were doing this stuff to each other almost identically the way they're doing it now. And it's so neat. Listeners, if you have a favorite piece of amber we have not mentioned, let us know. Once again, put it up on Twitter, Facebook, somewhere where other people can see it. Let's yes. share it with the world. Absolutely. 
I'm going to fill this blog post with so many links and maybe hopefully pictures. We, 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 when we do the blog post, we're sticking to pictures that are in the public use, Creative Commons and yes. such. So hopefully I can find a bunch of these that I can put up on the blog post. Thank you to Nils for this recommendation. This has been super fun. Before we go, we have a patron question. Oh One boy. of the other things you can get as a patron is you can ask us questions and we'll answer them right here on the podcast. This episode's question comes from Luke, who asks, Can we talk about hedgehog evolution? I'm curious how we know about it, how well do quills fossilize, etc., but also where the heck these little cute little guys come from. Yeah, I think we can talk about that. An excellent question. Apparently, the way that hedgehog evolution works now is that you you make it and you don't pay any attention to what the fans want, and the, the fans get really upset about it, so you go back and remake it and push your movie off for several months. Yep. But in the fossil record... So hedgehogs... I'm real salty about that. Oh, yes. <laughs> hedgehogs belong to the family Erinaceidae, which includes hedgehogs and gymners, which are also called moon rats. Which are weird. They are the closest relatives of hedgehogs are shrews and moles. They belong to this group called the Eulipotyphla altogether. Bunch of insectivores. These days, hedgehogs are found in the old world, Europe, Asia, Africa, etc. But in the past, they were much more widespread. Now, exactly when they get started is not known. So I asked my friend Jess about this, who is a hedgehog aficionado. As far as I know, there are not hedgehog fossils from the Mesozoic, at least not definite hedgehog fossils. But we do see them very early on in the Cenozoic. The oldest known hedgehog, or at least among the oldest known hedgehogs, is a species named Silvacola acaries from British Columbia, the Eocene. So up where around 50, 50 some million years ago, it is super tiny, only two inches long, five or six centimeters long. Ow. There are others from the Eocene, uh, two from the Messel Pit, which is beautiful, excellent preservation, which means that we can see that one of them had quills and the other one did not. Ooh, weird. Macrocranian is one that is well-preserved, like those mice we talked about at the beginning. You can see the outline of the fur, no quills, but Pholodocircus has spiky little quills preserved in the sediment alongside it. Cool. Which is very cool. The quills, by the way, are probably... So there are other animals with quills, like Tenrex, mm -hmm. which are probably convergent. Yeah. They probably evolved that multiple times. Uh, porcupines, same basic thing. Yes. Interestingly enough, there is a genus called Amphichinus, which is Oligocene and Miocene, which is known not only in Europe, Asia, Africa, but also North America. Numerous species all over the, the northern continents, suggesting that hedgehogs were indeed once much more widespread. But for all of these, these examples, they're pretty much hedgehogs. Yeah. The hedgehog form showed up very early on, at the very least. I'm always interested when a weird, you know, quote unquote weird, as in the fact that there's not a lot of spiny mammals, like when a unique morphology shows up and then is oddly successful. Yeah. And consistent. You know, it's not what you would necessarily suspect. You know, you tend to expect 
weirdos to be one shots or weird offshoots that went off into this one weird thing and it's a really specialized group that's right this one weird trick yeah but like hedgehogs evidently it's a good to be spiny and then more recently i'm sure there are lots of ex modern genera and species of hedgehogs that have been found in like pleistocene ice age stuff i do want to make mention of dino galerics which is not technically a hedgehog Uh, it's a gymner so it's a cousin of hedgehogs but it's the one from the late miocene uh what used to be gargano island and you remember episode four island evolution you know what happens on islands yeah this was a two foot long (laughs) moon rat so it was a a near hedgehog the size of a large rabbit or a small cat wow (laughs) which is pretty cool it's almost dachshund sized and for small yeah. dachshunds, that is dachshund-sized. <laughs> yep. So hedgehogs have a pretty rich, pretty consistent history uh, in the fossil record all around the northern uh, continents. Very cool. Thanks for the question, Luke. Yeah, Thanks for the suggestion, one. Nils. Thanks for listening, listeners. Hopefully you enjoyed this episode and our trip through the fossil record of Amber a little. We release new episodes every fortnight, so stay tuned for more episodes coming up. Keep an eye out all week, all month, all month long for episodes of our Kaijun Silver Screen Science series. We're talking about Godzilla and King Kong and other kaiju. Keep an ear out for what we're doing at NAPC and DragonCon. Ideally, hopefully, we will be bringing back recordings from those trips. Yes. And as always, keep your comments, feedback, questions, suggestions coming our way. Keep you when you started with keep, I, my brain half expected you to say it to yourselves. And I was like, that's not what we want. Keep it to yourselves. Keep Don't it to yourselves. Tell we, me nothing. We had enough of it. No. Tell me please. how to do my podcast. We love them. We love hearing from you. Thank you for listening. We'll be back trailing off, doing the thing at the end of the episode. Bye. Goodbye, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Common Descent Podcast. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and check our WordPress blog for pictures and links after each episode. Huge thanks to our patrons whose support helps keep this podcast running and who get access to bonus goodies on Patreon. The song you're hearing is called On the Origin of Species by Protodome, which we found at ocremix.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us next time.